0: which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time.
1: Welcome to Crash Course, a podcast about business, political, and social disruption, and what we can learn from it. I'm Tim O'Brien. Today's Crash Course... AI versus Money Managers As we've all heard by now, AI, or artificial intelligence, has arrived. Courtesy of ChatGPT, the large language model software that already has more than 100 million users. It processes questions and turns out brilliant answers in the blink of an eye. It isn't sentient. It's software, after all. But still, it gives every appearance of having the ability to learn and adapt to refine its output in increasingly sophisticated ways. We're also used to economic and technological revolutions battering blue-collar workers the hardest. But ChatGPT's debut signals that any number of white-collar jobs could be disrupted and replaced by bots. Writing, teaching, programming, client services, analysis of many stripes, consulting, healthcare, and many other professions may all be up for grabs in this brave new world. Money management, the science and art of successfully investing for institutions and individuals could also be in AI's crosshairs. Investing has already been transformed over the last several decades by computers, an avalanche of ubiquitous global, market, corporate, and financial data, oceans of liquidity, stronger risk management tools, and ever more probing and state-of-the-art quantitative analysis. AI promises to up the ante even further. Joining me to talk about whether or not bots are going to devour money managers' business and livelihoods are Aaron Brown and Nir Kesar. Both of these gentlemen are contributing columnists for Bloomberg Opinion, and both of them are successful investors. Aaron, you're the former chief risk officer for one of the world's largest hedge funds, AQR Capital Management, and a prolific author. Welcome to the show.
2: Thank you very much, Tim.
1: And Nir, you're the founder of Unison Advisors, an investment firm specializing in multi-asset portfolios. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Tim. Okay, so this is the first time I've had two guests on simultaneously, so let's see how this goes. I'd like you both to jump in when you feel inspired, but I'll also try to steer things along so our listeners can keep track. And a warning, guys, if you start throwing around alphas, betas, vars, and other fancy lingo, I'm going to stop you and ask you to explain yourselves. All right, Aaron, let's start with you. And let's move through some of the basics. What is money management? Define it for me. And I'm looking for an umbrella term here, which is why I chose money management. Maybe I should have stuck with plain old investing. Anyway, have at it. What is money management?
2: Well, from a practical business standpoint, there are two main things you have to do. One of them is to get people to trust you with their money. And the second is to either convince them that you're doing this or to actually do this is to provide them a better return they can get from purely passive index funds or you know other inexpensive simple techniques. And, you know, it can range from, well, even running index funds on one hand, just getting them more cheaply than other people, to some of the most sophisticated strategies where you demand 50% of the profits in return for delivering or promising really exceptional returns
1: do you agree with that definition?
3: I agree with what Aaron has said. I would just take one step back and say we all have a practical problem that we face. And the practical problem that we have is if we are fortunate enough to have savings in our life, then we have to do something with those savings. And you can put that in the bank or there's various places that you can put it, but you have to do something with it. And primarily you have to protect it. It's great if you can grow it, but you don't want to lose the money that you save. And so you have an issue, and the question is, what is the best way to handle that money? There are professionals, money managers, let's say, who will come along and will manage it for you, just like there are people who will do any number of services in your life and will charge you a fee to do it. Increasingly, it's getting easier to do that yourself. But at the end of the day, money management seeks to solve a very simple problem, which is I have savings. I want to preserve and grow those savings.
1: So now that we know what money management is, let's take that up a step further then, Nier. What is successful money management?
3: Well, that's a trickier question, and you're going to get a far broader range of opinions on that, I think. What I would say is, ultimately, this also is a practical question, which is you have savings that we have said you want to preserve and grow, and at the same time, you have inflation nipping at your heels. In other words, every single day that you hold a dollar, the value of that dollar goes down because inflation is catching up to it. So at the very least, if you want to preserve the value of your savings, you have to make it grow faster than the rate of inflation. And there are various ways that you can do that. You can invest in bonds, you can invest in stocks, all things we can get into if you want. But the important thing to know is you can't just take and stuff it in your mattress, because if you do, the value of that will go down over time.
1: And so expertise matters in this realm.
3: Expertise is important, I would say, to avoid many of the pitfalls, however, One of the things that's interesting about technology and the way that markets have evolved is expertise is becoming less and less important if your goal is merely to try to grow your money faster than the rate of inflation.
1: So, Aaron, jump in. Do you agree with Nir's notion of what successful money management is?
2: I don't disagree with him, but most of successful money management is in the head of the investor or the beneficial owner. Yes, it's nice if your money grows faster than inflation, but it's more important that you sleep at night, that you feel financially secure, that you trust what's going on. And so a lot of money management is about either reassuring individuals or explaining to them precisely what you are going to do, when you are going to lose or make money, or in the case of institutions, dealing with their institutional constraints Peer risk, you know, uh, chief investment officers of pension funds seem to spend a lot more time worrying about how they're outperforming their peers than about any kind of absolute goal. So I, I think money management goes well beyond getting an inflation beating return or reducing risk. The investor has to understand and appreciate it.
1: So you think it actually goes into being a nanny or a therapist? (laughs)
2: Well, there is quite a lot of that. You spend an awful lot of time as a money manager on the phone with clients, preparing presentations that make people feel good about what you're doing.
1: I guess, you know, boy, we could really just go off on that one. Because that, that obviously comes out of the fact that people are ignorant, as we all are, about any number of things, including money. And if they're not doing the hard work to get up to speed, on how they're investing their money, it opens up an ability for a money manager to give them calming advice, soothing advice, stuff that'll let them sleep well at night. That's a different kind of intelligence. I'm not saying it's not worthy, but that's EQ to a certain extent, as opposed to IQ, right?
2: I would agree with that, yes, it is. Or in the case of institutions, it's, I don't know, there's a thing for that, you know, institutional Q.
1: And I guess it can open the door to hucksterism too, right? If you're able to soothe people's nerves who actually aren't up to speed fully on how the markets work or what they should do with their money, they can also become marks, can't they?
2: Yeah, that's absolutely true. But I think people tend to veer too quickly in that direction. Traditional financial advisors, the kind of people we used to used to you know that used to work with individuals some of them were hucksters some of them were just churning for commissions and putting people in all kinds of bad stuff but many of them really gave their clients a secure happy financial life they understood insurance and taxes and wills and other matters they took care of a million details that keep people up at night a lot of people today are unhappy with all the choices and information and things they have to worry about And the old-fashioned financial advisor, even charging fairly high fees, really gave many people a great service.
1: There's also a lot more information because of technological developments available to investors now. There's a certain amount of transparency and intellectual dexterity that's available to average investors that wasn't present, say, even three decades ago. Isn't that right, Nir?
3: Certainly. There are a lot of people doing a lot of great things within money management, and there are Some people, I would say the bias here or my bias here tends to be more sort of in the direction of Wall Street. There's still a lot of shenanigans that go on, I would say, the industry taking advantage of people who aren't as well versed. But certainly there are more tools available to ordinary investors today than there have ever been. Um, And it's easier for them to manage their money if they want to manage their money and cheaper for them to do it than it has ever been. And it's so cheap and easy, actually, that it's hard to imagine it moving further in that direction. The question is whether we can get the information, we as an industry, can get that information to ordinary investors. And maybe more importantly, whether we have the financial incentive to get that information to investors. And that's something that the industry has been grappling with for probably 10 or 20 years as this information and the ability to invest cheaply and yourself has become available.
1: So in that context then, what goal ideally does successful investing serve? From the
3: perspective of the investor? Yes. I mean, I think I will marry sort of the two perspectives that are complementary, not opposing, that Aaron and I have both offered. I mean, ultimately, what you want is you want to preserve and grow your money, and you also want to be at peace with your money. I mean, there are a lot of people, and everybody knows people like this, who are just constantly anxious about how much money they have and do they have enough money and are they going to lose their money and you know money is a big deal and ultimately yes you want your money to be in a good place and you want it to grow but you also want to be in harmony with your money you don't want to have to be anxious about it all the time and so that is the picture in my view of like a full life in relation to your money
1: is that sort of where you come down Aaron?
2: Yeah. Personally, I kind of, I'm perfectly happy to put a lot of my money in index funds and just take the average. And, you know, if it goes up, it goes up. If it goes down, it goes down. But many people are not, you know, many people want to know that someone's looking at their money. That person may not be able to prove they actually do any good that, you know, when they pull out of companies, those companies go down. When they overinvest, overweight a company, it goes up. But it's very reassuring to people to know someone is watching it.
3: The question, though, I would ask Tim and Aaron is the people who don't prefer to invest in index funds, are they doing that from a knowing place? In other words, Aaron, I would argue the reason you prefer index funds is because you're highly sophisticated about financial markets and you have all of the evidence in the peer-reviewed literature, et cetera, at your fingertips and you know what it says and you probably know that you're best off in index funds. The question is, are most people That's sophisticated. When they say they prefer something other than an index fund, are they making a knowing decision? Are they making a decision out of ignorance? Or have they been directed by an industry to more expensive products? And index funds is an alternative, fully sort of on a fully informed basis.
2: Yeah, my argument, and of course, maybe I'm the last person to tell how good my thinking is. But yeah, I mean, I like the index funds. And I also like, I pay very high fees or or use some very sophisticated strategies where I think I have an edge. There is a middle ground of sort of your traditional actively managed mutual fund that has no strong track record of success that I think are pretty clearly not good, (laughs) that pretty clearly lose money to inflation and taxes in the long run after fees, and especially do not outperform index funds, and that is... Clearly a marketing effort that this product has been sold more or less for the same reason that, you know, people pick a name brand Coca-Cola over a generic store cola with identical ingredients. You know, it's it's the branding.
3: But Aaron, this is what I mean by making a knowing decision. I think when we say there are some good managers, some bad managers, I think we underestimate the problem. I mean, the evidence is that the vast majority of people who are going to try to beat the index are going to lose to the index. And that includes the most sophisticated managers charging the highest fees. So it's not just that, yes, you could find a manager who's going to beat the index, but the probability of your doing that and you're doing that in advance is very, very, very low. Would you agree with that?
2: No, no, I wouldn't. I believe that if you apply sensible filters, so you kind of filter out the people who aren't doing anything, the people with actually bad track records and so on. I think that certainly an institution can do a much better job combining some low fee index products with some very sophisticated high fee products, not necessarily that will beat the index, but that will combine with the index to give a better risk adjusted return. The average retail investor who doesn't have access to the good hedge funds, who doesn't have the time or expertise to pick solid mutual funds from just branded ones that have no advantage, I think that person is much better off sticking with the cheapest, most tax-efficient, well-diversified index funds.
1: Now, we could stay on this particular topic for the rest of the show, but we're not doing index funds. We're going to get into AI The only reason I'm calling a halt to this avenue of discussion is because we'll never keep going on to the other ones, which means you guys will have to come back again so we can talk about other things. One other foundational idea I want to lay down now as we continue to talk about this is the idea of, is investing different from trading? And I want to make that distinction now because I want to come back to it later when we talk about AI's role in all of this. I think of trading as a time-constrained tool that might involve strategy, but I think of investing as a less time-constrained philosophy that has to involve strategy. But go ahead, Aaron, school me if you disagree with how I've parsed the differences between these two things.
2: Yeah, that's a good way to do it. And in the context of AI and machine learning, they've been enormously successful in trading. And in fact, really for about 30 years now, Computers have done all the serious trading, not necessarily with artificial intelligence. The original algorithms and systematic things were very simple. Now you think, you know, trading is machines. It's like, you know, the autopilot in an airplane. It's just much, much better than humans. Investing so far, we have not seen much real success from artificial intelligence.
1: Nir, where do you reside on that?
3: I agree with all that. I would just add, for me, there's an element of duration. So I tend to think of trading as just a short-term bet, whereas investing is a longer-term bet. And it's not necessarily binary. You know, one can sort of define those in different ways. But certainly, the longer-term your horizon, the more you're investing and the less you're trading.
1: Okay. Now that we've cleared up all of that, I want to take a brief break to hear from one of our sponsors. And then we'll be right back.
0: You know success when you see it. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts.
1: We're back with two smarties, Aaron Brown and Nir Kesar. And we're talking about whether AI is going to upend Wall Street and the legions of people who work as money managers in one form or another. So, Aaron, let's continue. We've tried to define what investing is. Now let's talk about how AI might tip the entire apple cart. Lead us off with that thought. What do you think the arrival of AI means for the investing world?
2: Well, okay, so we're talking about investment here, not trading. I spent an awful lot of the last 15 years (laughs) trying to use advances in machine learning and artificial intelligence and data science to improve investing decisions. I mean, in theory, you can turn your algorithm loose. Unlimited amounts of data in any language reacting instantly to news announcements. Before a human has read the first word, it can digest whether it's positive or negative and put in trades. And this huge, broad perspective, able to instantly correlate information of totally different accounting data, uh, research reports of government statistics and so on, should allow you to make much better investment decisions, should be able to tell you, you know, which companies are going to succeed and grow and which ones are going to stumble and fall. It just doesn't yet seem to work, and I don't know why.
1: Last year you wrote, and I'll quote you, that a tireless machine able to digest all information and immune to biases should be clearly superior to humans when it comes to investing, except it's not, close quote. You've also said that humans are essential in the investment process. So how so? Why does warm blood matter in this argument?
2: Well, that's a dated (laughs) quote. The humans being essential in the investment process, I said, was that machine learning tends to be a black box and it can't explain itself. You can't give it new information and come up with a better joint decision. But chat GPT kind of blew that out of the water. Now, Computers are actually better at explaining their decisions and conversing with you. You can give it new information, you can ask it questions, and you can change its outcomes. Unfortunately, what we know about ChatGPT is that it often gives very, very convincing, persuasive answers that sound like the world's greatest expert that are completely wrong. So we need to take that next step. But if we can take that next step and ChatGPT confine itself to actual things it knows... Yeah, I'm not sure we do need humans anymore.
1: You know, you cited two research papers in a more recent column you wrote, and you noted that the interpretation of text and financial price movements may forecast a different outcome with AI. You said it's a long way from taking over Wall Street, but there's no reason to think it can't. Is that how you see it still?
2: Yeah. What we've seen, the successes we have seen is, you know, what I call the wrong answer faster. <laughs> Machines are getting pretty good at guessing how humans will interpret something, and they can do it in microseconds instead of half an hour. So you get a huge trading advantage from that. But you're still only predicting how humans will view something. You're not actually getting at fundamental economic reality.
1: So, near, is AI going to eat money manager's lunch? I think it's entirely plausible that
3: AI will displace what humans do now. But I think to fully understand that, we have to set the stage of what is happening today before you inject AI into it. And that is to say, you have the market writ large. The stock market, a lot of people look at, say, the S P 500 or whatever it is. You have the market on the stock side. You have the market on the bond side. And that is already automated. If you want to buy the market, the bond market or the stock market, you can do that now with very little interference from human beings. And so technology has already taken that over. On the other side, you have a bunch of humans running around, and there has been for a couple of decades, trying to do better than that. And this is the part that's entirely plausible that AI will come in and replace those people. So now AI is going to try to do better than the market. And the thing that we have to understand about that is that the vast majority of these humans running around trying to do this are wasting their time. Because the vast majority of them will fail at it over any reasonable period. More than 90% of them will not be able to do it. And so you can stop and ask yourself philosophically, why are they doing this if they can't win? Let's leave that aside for one second, although we can come back to it if you want. Now inject AI into those people's chairs and ask yourself a couple of questions. One is, okay, If the AI replaces the humans and the humans can't do it, is there a reason to believe that AI is going to do it any better than them? And the truth is we don't know the answer to that question. But let's give AI the benefit of the doubt. And let's say that AI is so much smarter than what humans can do that it will now be able to beat the market, to do what humans have always wanted to do. The problem with that is the first person into AI is going to have an advantage, clearly. But as AI becomes more adopted because ultimately profits are going to attract competition, everybody has an AI, then no one can beat the market.
1: In other words, you lose the first mover advantage over time.
3: Exactly. If it turns out that AI will be as good of an investor as we think, then what will happen is markets will become more efficient. Whatever advantages AI finds in the markets will disappear. And ultimately, no one will be able to win.
1: You know, that ties in, I guess, to the argument you made earlier that people are better off investing in index funds because anything that tracks a broad market will generally outperform what individual stock pickers or people trying to beat averages are going to be able to do over time based on the performance data we already know that's out there. And you would say that that's going to accrue to AI as well.
3: Well, yes. One of two things is going to happen. Either AI is as good as the humans, but no better, in which case that's a fail. Or AI is a lot better than the humans, in which case the competition among all the AI bots is going to basically, the profits from that activity will disappear. Which, by the way, it's worth just saying, we have a history here. Active managers, humans have gotten better over time. If you went and you looked at the average stock picker in the 1960s and 1970s, that person was a lot less skilled than the active managers today. And so we have a history of humans becoming better at their craft, and we also have a track record. And what do we know about that track record is as the humans became better at their craft, counterintuitively, their ability to generate excess returns, in other words, to beat the market, went down.
1: Because so many other people were developing the same expertise contemporaneously.
3: Exactly. Competition makes it harder to make money, not the reverse. I think what that history tells you is that AI is likely to do the same thing if it turns out that AI is better than the humans.
1: I was going to say we could put Warren Buffett off to the side in this equation, although even more recently, he hasn't had the same kind of fantastic returns he had early in his career.
3: That's right. And that might explain part of it.
1: So, Aaron, you work for a large hedge fund. Come to the defense of hedgies and active stock picking here. If no active stock pickers can reliably beat the market, then maybe AI can't either? Or am I wrongheaded in that perspective?
2: Yes, you and Nier are wrongheaded. And this is a fundamental issue. And I think the view expressed by Nier is deeply pessimistic and ignores the connections between finance and the real economy. Here's how I see it. The reason the index funds are both so cheap and efficient and produce such a great return it's not magic it is you know ordained by God when the world began it's because of work by more aggressive investors that's individuals who are aggressive and talented and also hedge funds and the way i think about it is these investors go out they look for exotic assets, illiquid you know, assets they trade things in new ways And they generate alpha. They beat the market. Of course, as they do this, you get more liquidity in those assets. You get more familiarity and information. And so what I call hedge fund beta comes up. These are people who perform sort of well-known hedge fund strategies like merger arbitrage or convertible arbitrage or something like that. But they learned how to do it, you know, from a paper or from working at some other place, and they kind of do it mechanically. And that's worth some fees to investors more than index funds, but it's nothing special. And eventually it turns into beta. It turns into what anybody can get in an index fund, but it's a continuous process. I told
1: you at some point I'd stop you. I knew you'd say beta. So let's just tell our listeners right now, what is beta and what is alpha?
2: Well, for the purposes of this discussion, Beta is something anybody can get cheap or free, so beta is what you get from an index fund. Alpha is what it takes work and money to get, so it's an additional return you can get, but only by investing more in systems and people and and information, whatever. But the point is, this is a continuous process, and this does two things. It makes the economy more efficient, And it gives index funds, eventually, not immediately, but eventually the index funds improve their risk-adjusted returns because they're embracing more and more strategies that used to be alpha and now have migrated all the way to beta. The promise of AI in investing is in making the economy better, in directing capital to the firms that are going to use it to grow and succeed, and directing capital away from those people who are going to waste it. And, you know, if it can do this, then a long-term expected return on the market above inflation could move up from, you know, the 6% it was in the 20th century to 8 10 12%. And what this does is it means more and more people, ordinary people with median or below median incomes, can save money from their own work and have financial security and retire in comfort. The higher the return you can get from real economy the more financially secure people could be. So this is how we will measure the return of AI. It may be absolutely the case that in 50 years AI is just beating the index funds but only because AI made the index funds so much better.
1: And near you you had a broad smile on your face at a couple different moments here. Tell me what's on your mind.
3: Well, I you know I have a column for Bloomberg opinion about AI and investing and one of the things that I mentioned in there half jokingly is that one of the things that indexers people who are fans of index funds often hear from active managers is that active managers are very important because it is their function. It is what they do that allows index funds to work along the lines of what Aaron laid out. And while all of that is true, what amuses me is this idea that AI could come in and do that function along the lines of what Aaron is describing. And the reason that's humorous to me is because indexers can finally stop listening to the whining from active managers that what they do is so important that if they didn't go away, And if they went away, that it would be difficult for indexers to do what they do. But that's where I am optimistic. I think that to the extent that AI can come along and do the job of active managers and can take over from Wall Street, then perhaps that function can be done more cheaply. Perhaps markets can become even more efficient than they are. And perhaps we can stop having these discussions about the fact that if there weren't any active managers, then indexers would ruin the world. So from that perspective, I'm relatively optimistic.
1: Okay, on that note of optimism, let's take another break. I want to hear from our sponsor, and we will come right back.
0: You know success when you see it, or you think you do. The people in the spotlight, athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts.
1: We're back with Aaron Brown in near KSAR, and we're talking about whether AI is going to upend professional investing. Near, you've gone so far as to say that large language models like ChatGPT, looking at Fed statements on inflation or looking at financial news, aren't really going to make a difference because both of those things, Fed statements and financial news, have very little or perhaps no predictive value. So it doesn't matter who's analyzing them, that there's no inherent predictive value in them. Am I interpreting your thoughts on that correctly?
3: Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think the point of departure question that we should ask ourselves about anything that is being automated is, is that process worth automating to begin with? And, you know, you have and you have long had humans on Wall Street and elsewhere looking for advantages, looking for ways to outsmart the market, reading headlines, mining headlines for information, looking at the pronouncements of central bankers and other policymakers to see what that would portend for markets. And you know, the best evidence that we have is that none of this is useful because at the end of the day, most of those people don't do any better than the market. And so you have to stop and ask yourself, why are we automating something that by all available evidence has no use? The only answer that you can really come up with, I think is to say, well, there's information there Humans may just not be smart enough to glean it, whereas AI may come along and be able to do a better job of that.
1: In fact, it's quite possible that AI could be better at pattern recognition than humans are. And all of that documentation and data may have a predictive value in it that we haven't discovered yet.
3: For sure. But I guess the point is we should be skeptical about that. We should be open-minded about that. But we should be skeptical and we should be mindful that ultimately what we're asking AI to do is something that we have really very little evidence that that activity has any value today.
1: Aaron, I, I want to jump in here with a counterargument to Nir that I will ask you to voice for me because you're smarter than I am. But I think of a firm like Renaissance. They've had one fund that specializes in quantitative analysis. They've beat the market for decades with that fund. It's a boutique fund. It is not a large fund by many hedge fund firms' sizes, maybe $10 billion in assets. Why couldn't AI eventually just be a version of that renaissance fund on steroids?
2: I think not only could it, it might already be. We don't. Renaissance, of course, is one of the most (laughs) intensely secretive firms, and we don't really know exactly what they do. But that's almost just a change of degree. Renaissance has always done the kinds of models that are similar to artificial intelligence. And in fact, what I would say is that the key difference or the key, you know, the Rubicon you cross is when you let the model start updating itself. So Renaissance, what it seems to be is that people are using very similar kind of pattern recognition. Many of the original algorithms they used were based on speech recognition, which is a area of artificial intelligence, but they did not allow the models to update themselves. They did not use machine learning. They used human learning to monitor these models. They may already have switched over, and I would be surprised if they haven't at least looked very hard at it, to let the models update themselves. But I think Renaissance moving to artificial intelligence would be sort of a minor tweak to their operation.
1: I guess you've raised an interesting point in that Renaissance's outperformance existed in a black box and their own internal model that no one else can see and were relying on their own reporting that they've outperformed, but no one's thought that they've been lying about that, including their very happy investors for decades. But if that black box essentially comes out into the open through AI and becomes a tool for the masses, you no longer have to have vast computing power. You no longer have to have bespoke inputs to have a quantitative model that produces superlative returns, doesn't that mean then that over time everything will revert to the mean and that your advantage in data processing and data analytics gets shaved because everyone has the same tool you do?
2: Well, yes, that's true. So Renaissance may be out of business in 10 years because there's a renaissance gpt out there that anybody can get free on the internet but if that's true i think that will mean the economy is growing faster than it otherwise would have i think that means there will be generally smarter investment decisions
1: and i suppose if an important role in your worldview of money managers is they allow people to sleep soundly at night because it nurses you to sleep with the thought that your money will be all well and good bot's probably can't do a great job of that part of investment advice, right? Unless maybe 200 years from now someone will listen to this podcast and laugh at us because there's a loving robot sitting next to someone's bed patting their wallet. But at least in the near term right now, that's really not on the horizon, the sort of EQ side of this equation, right?
2: No, I I would disagree with that. I mean, chat GPT is very reassuring. (laughs) The problem is it's not right often enough. And so we have to solve that problem.
1: Aaron, I think ChatGPT might be reassuring to you because you're an expert and you're in the markets every day. But I don't know that someone at home who's worried about their mortgage or their IRA or their kids' college savings would feel an answer coming back out of a machine is the same as a human being saying, you might want to do this with your money, you might want to do that with your money.
2: I don't know. I mean, it produces much more reassuring answers than a human. If you called up your stockbroker and say, how come the stock you recommended last week went down, You know, he's going to scramble around, he's going to give you some platitudes. Chat GEP is going to say, well, you know, there was this announcement on this date, but I'm not really worried about it because of this and that. And it will give you a very, you will feel that you are speaking to an expert who really knows and is honest and never admits any kind of doubt about things. Whether or not people are going to trust that. I mean, granted, a lot of people are going to say, well, that comes from a computer, I can't trust it. Just like many people would be nervous if they knew that a computer was flying their airplane or a computer was, you know, running their electrical grid or things like that. But that's been true for decades. And many essential functions that your life depends on are decisions made by computers. So then that
1: aspect of this that you raised in the beginning of the show, that an important part of money management is padding people on the hand, is actually completely dispensable.
2: Well, except that some of those very convincing answers are not true. And until you solve that problem, that it's equally convincing when it's right and when it's wrong, people are going to have trouble trusting it.
1: Nir, would you turn your money over to a bot?
3: Well, I mean, I would argue that I mostly do because, you know, like I said, most index funds, I would argue, are bots, And one of the things that we haven't touched on yet, but it's, I think, worth mentioning, is that a lot of the methods that historically humans used to try to beat the market, to generate what Aaron called alpha, and alpha I'll just define as returns above the market. It's a little bit more complicated than that, but I think it's a good, useful, simple definition. A lot of those methods have already been automated and now are indexes. So a lot of the ways that we traditionally thought of as alpha are now just wrapped in an index fund. You can buy it and a bot will do it for you. And that's great, too. And so one of the things just thinking about this sort of from a financial evolution perspective, what's going to happen is AI is going to come along and is going to say, hey, I found alpha. And that alpha will be automated, delivered on mass, And all of a sudden, it will no longer be alpha. And you could imagine a scenario where that just keeps going endlessly. But the thing is, the more likely outcome is that, and we're seeing this already, when you look at traditional sources of alpha, what you see is that the excess return that they generated historically is higher than the alpha that they produce today. And that's just because of adoption. You could imagine a world where both the number of sources of alpha diminishes and their impact also diminishes. And so you have these bots frenetically going out there trying to find new sources, new sources, new sources, and their efficacy, diminishes over time
1: because alpha is always getting absorbed and then replicated
3: right and ask yourself i mean is there an infinite amount of alpha in the universe i don't know the answer to that my guess is probably not but what does that do to the pricing power of the industry in other words 30 40 years ago what was alpha people charged one to two percent of your money a year for now they're charging point one percent for right Well, there's two reasons. One is it's become automated, but also because it just doesn't generate as much alpha as it used to, right? And so you could imagine a world where AI becomes ubiquitous, where AI is awesome in terms of investing, and it just brings down the cost of everything so that this world that we inhabit now that Aaron is describing, where you have hedge funds and other people at the top of the mountain who are deemed to be worth paying two and twenty, two percent of your money a year plus 20% of the profits, where they just can't demand those kinds of fees anymore. And that's quite an optimistic picture indeed
1: from my perspective. So infinite alpha would be a good name for a hedge fund, since you brought it up.
3: Or an AI.
2: Or an AI. I'd like to say we can measure the amount, potential alpha. It's not infinite. It's roughly three times the current value of everything in the world. And the way I get to that figure is if we had infinite alpha. If if we had, you know, perfect AI systems, then every investment would return the risk-free rate because there would be no risk. And in that case, the world is worth about three times what it's worth today. At least I'm talking about the financial assets of the world. So that makes a lot of people rich. I mean, that would be a really, really good world if we could do it. And we've got lots and lots of work to make that happen. And if that's the case, and if computers are running everything and everybody is three times as rich as they are now, well, maybe that's an okay world and we can stop worrying about investing.
1: Aaron, we don't let anybody escape the show without telling us what they've learned from some of the collisions we're observing and the disruptions we've observed. What have you learned watching the advent of ChatGPT and AI's future coming a little closer to the present as it pertains to money management?
2: Well, before last fall, before the chat GPT and the reaction to it, I would have said humans are going to be essential to the money management process for decades at least because they can explain what they do, because they can have conversations with their investors. Chat GPT convinces me that's no longer a barrier, both the quality of the program itself and how people react to it. We still have the problem of getting artificial intelligence and machine learning to make good investment decisions or better investment decisions than humans. That has not been solved. That I haven't learned much about in the last six months. But what I previously saw as the main barrier to adoption has gone away.
1: Nir, how about you? What have you learned?
3: I mean, I would echo largely what Aaron has said, which is it's shocking how human-like ChatGPT can be. And it's shocking how early in this whole process we are and it's as good as it is. And so, you know, having no other information, I'm inclined to extrapolate into the future and say, I don't see why it couldn't do everything that everyone in the money management business does from back office people on Wall Street to client facing advisors. But this is my real concern about it from an investing perspective, if I can bring it up here, which is, I think all new technology eventually, and I think we're probably closer to that day than even I think, takes on an air of a can't-miss-investing opportunity. And I worry as I listen to these kinds of conversations, as I read a lot of the coverage about AI and ChatGPT, etc., that that hype is quickly revving up in the AI space. What that means is that a lot of people, and those people are already invested in AI, the early investors, the people with their chips already on the table, are going to make a fortune on it. But what's going to happen is it's going to attract a lot more investment later on. And those people, inevitably, a lot of those people are going to get in late in the game, just before sort of all the hype pops and the prices For AI as it's expressed in financial markets come down and people will lose a lot of money. I mean, we've seen this just in the last couple of decades. We've seen this with internet, with crypto, with almost everything. And I worry that from that perspective, AI is gonna cost people more money than it's gonna make them.
1: Aaron and Nier, we're out of time. Thanks for helping us sort out a complex topic, the collision of bots with humans.
2: Thank you very much, Nier and Tim. Thank you, Aaron.
1: You can find Aaron Brown in Nir Kaysar's columns on the Bloomberg Opinion website, and you can follow Nir on Twitter, at Nier And if you want to learn more about AI chatbots, we did another episode with fellow columnists Parmie Olson and Tyler Cowen. You can find that in the Crash Course show feed. Here at Crash Course, we believe that collisions can be messy, impressive, challenging, surprising, and always instructive. In today's Crash Course, I learned that AI, While it seems to have an advantage that's unbeatable, May, just like humans, loses advantages over time. What did you learn? We'd love to hear from you. You can tweet at the Bloomberg Opinion handle, at Opinion, or me, at Tim O'Brien, using the hashtag Bloomberg Crash Course. You can also subscribe to our show wherever you're listening right now and leave us a review. It helps people find the show. This episode was produced by the indispensable Anna Mazarakis, Moses Andam, and me. Our supervising producer is Magnus Hendrickson, and we had editing help from Sage Bauman, Katie Boyce, Jeff Grocott, Mike Nietzsche, and Christine Vandenbeilard. Blake Maples does our sound engineering, and our original theme song was composed by Luis Guerra. I'm Tim O'Brien. We'll be back next week with another Crash Course.